As Hunter said, I am Marcus, and I'm going to be doing the messages for this Sunday. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at Christ as Lion, and this Lion, the Lamb mini-series that we're doing, and this week, uh, we'll be looking at Christ as Lamb. But before we get started with this week, I just think it's good to refresh ourselves what the purpose of this small series is. Uh, the phrase, Lion and the Lamb, comes to us from Revelation 5. Uh, and to refresh your memory, lion and the lamb are two aspects or natures of who Christ is. Uh, he's both conquering power uh, and gentle at the same time. It isn't that on Monday he's powerful and on Tuesday he's gentle, but he maintains these things consistently 100%. Uh, similar to last week, I had some contrasts and some comparisons that I wanted to use to look at this lion and the lamb to help us understand it more. And so, uh, as I said last week, Jesus is uncompromisingly just, but is also overwhelmingly merciful. His majesty is sweetened by the fact that he's also meek. Even though he's equal to God the Father, he submits to God the Father. And though he's worthy of all praise, he was also patient to suffer and endure evil. Though he was the creator of the world, he came as a helpless infant to the world to a peasant family. He baffled the religious and political leaders with his wisdom, but at the same time was simple enough for children to understand. He could still a storm with one word, but he would not strike the people nailing him to the cross with lightning. This is the character of Jesus. He's unbelievably powerful and yet unbelievably tender. We also ended our time together last week discussing the power of what Jesus has done for us. Last week we looked at Colossians 1, Genesis 1, and John 11. And this week we'll be in Philippians 2, Mark 8, and John 12. We saw last week that through Jesus all things were created in and by him. When Jesus speaks, something comes out of nothing. We'll have lightness come out of darkness. We'll have life come out of death. We also saw how Jesus responded to the tomb of sin and death that Lazarus was in. He was outraged at the sight of it. He stood before the tomb, and the same voice that cried out, Let there be light, is the same voice that cried out to Lazarus, Come out, and Lazarus came out. The roar of Jesus has set us free, but Jesus is also the, the Lamb. Why, though? Why is that important? If you're a lamb, do you really, or if you're a lion, do you really need to be a lamb? This is what we'll look at this week. But before we do, let me pray for us one more time. Father God, you are the creator and sustainer of all things. Every good and living thing comes through you, and you use all things to accomplish your purposes. Lord, we are thankful for what you did on the cross to make us right before you. We're thankful for today that you've given us breath in our lungs, that we've been able to come and worship you in your house today. And Lord, we're also thankful for the things that you have for us in our future, both the good and bad, because your word says that it will be used to make us more into the image of your Son. God, we confess this week where we've stumbled. We confess where we've trusted in other things and we've sought pleasure and meaningless 
things that are not good or are not from you. Lord, let us turn in repentance towards you now. Would you meet with this message and may it communicate to hearts your glory. Would you meet the people here and that are listening uh, and would it also open their eyes to how great you are. Would you be with your church around the world that we'd be able to worship you and see you high and lifted up today. It's in Jesus' name and by the Holy Spirit's power we pray. Amen. So the first reference to Jesus being the Lamb of God can be found in John 1.29. John the Baptist, who has been ordained by God to go and prepare the way for the coming Messiah. He lays eyes on Jesus, and John the Baptist cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But what does that mean? Where, where does that come from? Is, what's the significance of this? In order to understand this claim, we need to first understand the significance of a lamb in the Bible. Now, a lamb is a weak and harmless and lowly and easily preyed upon animal. It is sheared naked for our clothes, and it is killed for our food. A lamb is also viewed as pure and innocent and gentle. Even today, our petting zoos feature lambs. While a lion draws our hearts to glory, a lamb draws our hearts to tenderness. Last week I mentioned the glory of the mountains and the oceans and the Grand Canyon, but there's another thing that makes time stand still for us, and it's not high and mighty. To illustrate this, I actually was listening to a sermon, and I heard a reference to this comic that I'll show you today. Uh, it was introduced to me in 2016. I can still remember sitting in my wife's parents' driveway on a warm August day, and I thought, I have to find this. So I looked it up, and here it is for us today. If you're having trouble reading it, I'll read it for us. Starting at the top left, it's so quiet. Yes, it is. Hey, ever notice the best moments make you feel insignificant. So here are a few of these best moments that make us feel insignificant. A quiet, starry winter night. Holding a hand of a loved one on a beach. A campfire on a cool summer evening. Holding your newborn child while they sleep. A hug from a dear friend or a family member that you've missed dearly and haven't seen in ages. The first words and first steps from a child. And seeing your spouse at the end of a wedding aisle. These are just some simple moments that make time stand still for us. They make us believe that everything's going to be okay. They're a comfort to us and they're satisfying to us. They give us a sigh of relief. And a lamb is pure, innocent animal. And you can literally walk it to the slaughterhouse with little to no resistance. And this is why its role in the Old Testament gets violent and bloody quickly. You see, human beings have a sin problem. Last week we discussed how we all function under this default, I am the center of the world. I am the center of all things happening around me. We're inherently selfish. We'll end friendships will end careers, will end marriages, just for the sake of my own personal happiness. Everyone driving in the slow lane is in your way, but everyone driving in the fast lane faster than you is endangering your safety. Our sin problem is this deep, lying thing that I am what all of this is for. 
And also, our sin isn't just a list of the bad things that we do. It's a condition of our heart. We come in, uh, and because of our sin, we cannot be in the presence of God. We come undone by it. It's like bleach and bacteria. It's not that the bleach can't be around bacteria. It's that when bacteria sees bleach, it comes unraveled. We need a solution for our sin problem. And this is where the lamb comes in. Now, because the lamb is viewed as pure and innocent, a deal was exchanged. Either you could pay the price for your sin, or a lamb could pay the price for you. The lamb receives your guilt and punishment while you receive the lamb's innocence and purity. This is what we see in the Old Testament. But you might be asking, is the lamb really equivalent to a human life? I mean, if I steal $20,000 from my employer, is it really fair for me to just kill a lamb? And besides, the lamb did nothing wrong. Is it fair that the lamb has to die for the person who did the wrong? Well, the questions are fair. We're going to ask that we wait on those. We'll get to them together shortly. To start, though, our first record of a lamb sacrifice comes in Genesis 22. Now, I would suggest you write these down. These won't be on the slides uh, for your own further study. But we're just going to look at the history of the lamb here. Genesis 22. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac asks Abraham, where is the lamb for sacrifice? Abraham says God will provide the lamb. In this story, it's a one-to-one -one transaction. Isaac needs his own lamb, and then the whoever else would sin would need their own lamb. And this is the thing that we see as we march through Scripture. Until, though, Exodus 12. And now things change. It goes from one lamb to one person to we get to Passover. And now it's one lamb per family unit. No longer one to one, but one family to one lamb. And this is how it is while we march through Scripture. But then we come to more. We'll come to Ezekiel 45, and now we have a new decree from God, where it's no longer one lamb per person or one lamb per family, but now it's one lamb for a nation. A lamb was not only good for a one-to-one -one transfer. The theme just continues to get bigger and bigger. And so now, let's relook at what John the Baptist had to say. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Did that phrase just become more powerful for you too? I mean, the lamb originally was just one person at a time, but slowly over time, the sacrifice needed to be bigger and bigger, and then we get to the lamb of God. We get to Jesus himself. The lambs of the Old Testament were just a giant arrow pointing to the ultimate lamb that was to come in the New Testament. Now, because it's God for all his children, and this is the good news that John the Baptist was sent to proclaim, here comes the Lamb. He's coming to deal with our sin. But how does the Lamb do that? This is where we'll go into Philippians chapter 2 with each other. Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In order for us to deal with our sin problem, Jesus had to do the unthinkable. He set all of his divine powers and privileges aside and took on the form of a servant. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus became not God. He was still fully God, 100% God, but also 100% man. He did this to dwell with us. I have an incredibly small example for us, just to have a little flavor of what this means that Jesus did. Say, for instance, your child comes to you with the book, The Little Engine That Could, and it's the hundredth time you've read your child this book. Now, you have two options that you can do. You can either remain outside of your child's world, or you can continue to remain in it. The child hands you the book and says, can you read this for me? To remain outside of your child's world is to say, ah, yes, the little engine that could. He could. In fact, he does. And everything happens and works out, and the little engine makes it. But that's not dwelling with your child. Rather, to dwell with your child, even though you know the details of every single page that you look at, it's to go through the story with them. And while the child has doubts and fears and questions if the little engine can, you carry on with the story because you know what the end is going to look like. And this is just a microscopic view of what Jesus has done with us. You see, Jesus was all-powerful. He didn't have to feel the pain that we feel. His voice created the universe. He didn't have to go hungry. Jesus was loved and delighted in by the Father and the Spirit. He had millions of angels singing his praises. He didn't have to come here and suffer and be taunted and mocked. Yet Jesus set aside his divine privileges of heaven and endured the harsh realities of this world. All the while, being sinless and without blemish, he called out to the people, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lion of God came to be a lamb for us. He came to take our sin. He came to take our punishment. But a problem has happened. We have rejected him. Matthew 25 is another one that we'll just briefly consider together because it has this sobering dialogue between Christ and man where Jesus tells the people who are supposedly his followers, depart from me, I never knew you. But his followers, or his so-and-so followers, respond, but Lord, how have we rejected you? And this is what Jesus says. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. You see, we don't like weak people. We've bought the lie that in order to be a winner, you need to be identified with winners. Or we've also bought into, you want progress? Well, it's got to come through power. We even have bought into the corporate world lie of, you want to see your brand grow and get bigger and better? Well, you need a winsome, dynamic leader to lead it. And that's in thousands of churches of America today. We've even believed the lie of Old Testament Israel, 
where we've trusted a political campaign, we've trusted a king, we've trusted a president, that's the hope of the kingdom of God right there. But we've done all this out of fear, because the world is a scary place. The world is harsh and crooked and damaging. So what's the best thing to do? Well, to find a powerful person to hide behind. But that's not what Jesus does. Let me ask, what do you think the opposite of fear is? Is it bravery? Is it courage? Is it a strong back or a winsome mind? I don't think it's any of these. You see, it's only love that casts out fear. For me, I uh, have done some adrenaline stuff like skydiving. Um, I've done things in high school like snowmobile racing. I, I love the thrill of things. But if there's a burning building, I'm not rushing inside of a burning building. But if my wife is inside a burning building, then I'm going into it. You see, courage and boldness can only come so close to death. But love looks death face to face. And this lust for bold, courageous power, it didn't just come from random believers of Jesus who followed him during his time on earth. This actually came from the Apostle Peter himself. This is where we'll begin in Mark 8, verses 31 through 33. He, being Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. <laughs> See, just before this passage, Peter is called the rock that Christ will build his church on. And now in the face of suffering, in the, in the face of not gaining popularity and political power, Peter starts to get concerned about what Jesus is saying. Whoa, 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 Jesus, what are you saying here? You have healed the blind, you've healed the sick, you've healed the paralyzed, you've made food out of nothing and fed thousands. What do you mean you need to suffer? That's insane. Do you know how much power you have? You could literally be king of Rome. You could be kings of the world with this. And can't we reach way more people as kings than we can as suffering servants? And you see what Jesus responds to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter was concerned with power, but Jesus set aside his divine power. Thankfully, Jesus wasn't distracted by the temporary praise of now in light of the eternal praise of later. So now, before we swing too far on the other side of the pendulum to see Jesus as only all lamb, we need to remember that he is still all lion too. Unbelievably powerful, unbelievably tender. I mean, just last week we read in John 11 where Jesus is outraged before the tomb of sin and death and called Lazarus out of the grave. So which is it then? Is he lion? Is he lamb? Is he power? Is he gentle? Can you really be these two things at once? Well, we can't read John 11 without eventually coming to John 12. Jesus' triumphant entry on Palm Sunday. The next day, 
the large crowd, the crowd, large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So we can't come up with a better image of a lion and a lamb than this passage. Here the people are cheering on the king of creation as he comes down from the hill, and the king of creation is riding a donkey. He's not in a chariot. He's not even on a stallion horse. It's a donkey. And he doesn't even own the donkey. But before we give the onlooking celebrators too much credit, in just a matter of days, these very people who at best will abandon Jesus, and at worst, chant for his death. Now, to take a quick note on that, growing up, I always heard the story that there were the good people that were cheering Jesus on, but then those big bad Pharisees had to come and change all of their minds. But as I studied this passage this week, I just found that that's not the case. When it says uh, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, uh, what it means there is that it wasn't that they didn't remember the Zechariah 9-9 passage. It's just that they saw their king from the physical oppression coming. They saw rising above Rome. They saw Israel being the next powerhouse nation. See, sometimes people speak better than they know. And these people have the same thoughts that Jesus was rebuked for. This is it. No more Rome oppression. No more being lowly peasants. We're going to rise to power, and it's our turn, to, our turn to be the powerful nation. Hosanna, God, with us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of our Lord. Yet even as their words were true, their hearts were far away from the Lamb of God. They wanted deliverance from a physical reign, not the reign of spiritual sin and death. And the irony is, as Jesus descended down from the hill... He saw these people face to face. These ones who laid the palm branches before him in their jackets. He knew their sin. He knew their scars. He knew their pain. He knew their names, their hurts. And though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. But rather he laid aside his divine privileges and took the position of a servant to death, even death on a cross. Here comes our Lamb of God, riding on a donkey on the way to a cross, looking the very people in the eyes who would later abandon or betray him, knowing their sin that he was about to endure for him. And this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just before John 12, Jesus stood before Lazarus' tomb to call Lazarus out of it. Why? It was so that Jesus could take the tomb for Lazarus. Not Lazarus' physical tomb, but the ultimate tomb. The tomb of sin and death. You see, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he was just going to die again eventually later. He needed something more than a physical healing. He needed the spiritual healing. 
He needed to be set free from sin. And the only way for that to happen was to have Jesus take the tomb of sin and death for Lazarus. Now to get back to the question from the beginning, is it fair that the lamb has to pay the price for the person? And no, it's not. The lamb did nothing wrong. But yet, if we see that is unfair, how unfair is it that the God of the universe took the price for what we've done wrong? Why did he literally set aside everything to come to this lowly, painful, exhausting place called Earth to do these amazing things and yet still get rejected? You see, grace is scandalous. Grace is a terrible thing to cry out fairness. Now, grace is just, don't get me wrong, but Jesus having to take on our punishment, why? It's because Jesus was more compelled by love than fairness. Taking on our sin and carrying them to the cross, this gets us back to Philippians 2 again. As outrageous as this is, it's the most loving thing you or I have ever seen before. We might consider dying for a good man, and yet Jesus goes through torture, isolation, and darkness for people who mock him and taunt him. Would we do this for these guilty, ungrateful people? There's no chance. And yet Jesus does it. He set aside all to redeem us in his creation to himself. It's the by glory, for glory, and to glory we talked about last week. So how are we to respond then? This is what Jesus has done to us, for us. We are to behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Now, beholding isn't just acknowledging, though. When a king would enter into a common area, the herald would cry out, Behold your king, and the proper thing to do was to get on your knees, was to pledge your loyalty to the king, was to pledge your life to the king. That is what beholding the king is. And yet we don't just have another worldly king who's eventually going to fade away, and his kingdom's eventually going to fade away too. We have an everlasting king with an everlasting kingdom that's going to do away with sin and death forever and ever. We'll be able to see and savor God's glory. At the end of Philippians 2, we see, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of every... At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But we are not quite off the hook yet. Until we hear our well done, good and faithful servant, we're still, we still have work to do here. And we'll actually find this at the very beginning of that Philippians 2. The one last thing that we haven't mentioned yet. At the very beginning, it says, have this mind among yourselves. What mind? He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Rather, he took the position of a slave to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, this is what Jesus was rebuking for, was rebuking Peter for in Mark 8. This is what he was saying, when the Son of Man must suffer many things. You see, Christianity, it is the call to life. But before we get the call to life, we first get the call to die. To die to self. To die to you being at the center of your world. To die to you being on the throne of your life. Well, continuing in Mark 8, we see, And the, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, 
If anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. So, to recap our time and to recap our series. The Lion of God has come to call us out of our tombs of sin and death so that the Lamb of God could take our place in the tomb of sin and death. By Jesus taking on our place in the tomb, he's conquered every tomb, freeing us to behold his glory forever and ever. In closing, this is from the book Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ that I referenced inspired this series. It is at the end of chapter 2, and the chapter is titled The Lion and the Lamb. So, the lion is a lamb, an animal that is weak and harmless and lowly and easily preyed upon and sheared naked for clothes and killed for our food. So Christ is lamb like lion. The lion of Judah conquered because he was willing to act the part of a lamb. He came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday like a king on the way to a throne, and he went out of Jerusalem on Good Friday like a lamb on the way to the slaughter. He drove out the robbers from the temple like a lion devouring its prey, and at the end of the week he gave his majestic neck to the knife, and they slaughtered the lion of Judah like a sacrificial lamb. The lamb-like gentleness and humility of this lion woos us in our weariness, and the lion-like lamb calls us to take heart from his absolute authority over all reality. And he reminds us that in all authority, he will be with us to the end of the age. This is what we long for. We want a champion, an invincible leader, but we also want a friend, someone who can sit with us in our pain, someone who can comfort us. People aren't simple. We're pitiful, yet we have mighty passions. We're weak, yet we dream of doing amazing things. We are transient, but eternity is written on our hearts. The glory of Christ shines all the brighter because of all of his diverse excellencies. It corresponds perfectly to our complexity. So to end on a question, Christ wrote in the Palm Sunday, knowing Good Friday was coming, and even though he had to go through Good Friday to get to Easter, he did it because he knew your name and loved you as his own. So the question is, do you know him? And if you know him, do you love him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to be our Lamb. Thank you that in all the power and the glory and the majesty that you had, you came to take the place of broken, sinful people, to take the punishment that you didn't deserve but we deserved, but your love compelled you to do so. God, would we in this week be reminded that your kingdom is the everlasting kingdom. May our kingdom decrease and may you increase. May we become less and you become greater. Lord, it's in all these things that we pray and that we trust you with our hearts for the first or hundredth time. It's by the power of the Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.